Welcome to Lawyerly, the podcast for lawyers and those who love them. I'm your host, Sean Kennedy. Today's episode of Lawyerly is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Array. Array manages the logistics of litigation so lawyers can focus on winning their cases. Learn more at trustarray.com. That's trustarray.com. Today, we're continuing our series called How Are You Doing Now? where we talk with lawyers who used to work for a big law firm called Howry. That is before Howry imploded and went bankrupt in 2011. In this episode, we're catching up with another former Howry lawyer, Fiona Cheney, seeing what happened to her after Howry's demise, and also talking about what it was that made Howry such a great place. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Lawyerly. My guest today is Fiona Cheney, who is both a lawyer and, at least from what I can see on social media, a semi-pro golfer as well. I may be wrong in that last part. Uh, Fiona is an investment manager and legal counsel at Omni Bridgeway, which is a litigation funding company. Welcome, Fiona. Sean, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I suspect that many of our listeners will have heard of litigation funding, but won't know exactly what that's about. What What do you do at Omni Bridgeway? What do I do? Um, I do a number of things. The, the job sort of splits somewhat down the middle, although more so on the um, actual underwriting and funding side from the business development side right now. But so a big part of what we as investment managers do is we help vet cases that come to us for potential funding, whether it's coming from a plaintiff directly, you know, from the client side, or if it's coming from a law firm, whether they're helping their clients seek funding or whether they're seeking funding for their firm as part of a portfolio. And so what what I do is I help underwrite those risks. And so assuming we like the case and it meets our sort of general metrics, then we do you know, or I do a deeper dive on the cases of looking at what are the causes of action, what is the timeline, what is the jurisdiction, you know, really trying to understand the risks and whether that may be a good case uh, for us to invest in. And so usually in the early part, it's a more shallow dive, if you will. And then once we get into term sheet, we do a pretty deep dive in which we do a lot of work in parallel with hiring outside counsel to also do a deep dive. We become outside counsels. It's a separate law firm than than the lawyers involved in the case, obviously, because we need an unbiased view of the case. And we do a substantial workup and then um, decide whether or not to fund it or to present it to our investment committee for approval. Interesting. So, so I wasn't aware that that, that was a thing. So you're, you as an in-house lawyer, essentially, for Omni Bridgeway are not only vetting cases yourself, but you're also going to outside law firms and, and getting their assistance in, in sort of vetting the cases. That's right. And, and what happens oftentimes is we'll either work with a firm in which we've funded a case that they are actually litigating, and then we'll end up using it and say, oh, you know what, that firm, we really like them. They've got great expertise in antitrust. Hey, the next antitrust case we get, uh, we should reach out to them for, we call it diligence counsel, for a diligence counsel assignment. Or vice versa, the firm will have acted as diligence counsel for us and through the process either have learned more about litigation funding or have 
discovered opportunities um, for themselves, and then they'll come back to us. But it's a great way for someone like me, who's got a lot of contacts in the legal world, having worked at some of the big law firms, um, of being able to maintain my contacts, being able to hire some of my contacts, which is always nice. And, you know, it's just very easy to stay in contact with your connections that way. So litigation funding in general, give me a 30-second sort of overview of what that is. So what litigation funding is, at least for Omni Bridgeway, we're a little bit, we're not the same as all litigation funders because we tend to be on the bigger side. But what we do is we invest in pieces of high stakes commercial litigation. So cases with reasonable recoverable damages of $10 million or more. And then, you know, again, we're only looking at commercial cases. So, you know, antitrust, patent, breach of contract, um, international arbitrations, th- things of that nature. So, you know, not the PI or the malpractice. Not that, not that those are bad things to invest in. It's just that's just not our space. What is what's different for somebody who's not familiar with the way law firms are operated and, and money issues and things? What's what's different about litigation funding versus you know, say investment general out in generally out in the marketplace. Sure. So there's a couple things. One, we view. Um, so let me back up for a second. So Omni Bridgeway is uh, we're a publicly traded litigation finance company. We're traded on the um, Australian Stock Exchange. So we are highly regulated in terms of we're regulated by the Australian Stock Exchange, and then also in the U.S. Given the size of our fund, we are also considered fund managers, and so we're also SEC regulated. So within those contexts, what we do and and what is sort of different for us than say, you know, let's say you're a law firm and you have a line of credit and you want to pull down on that line of credit. Well, those are all recourse obligations where regardless of the outcome of your cases or regardless of anything, you're going to be required to pay those funds back. And all of our funding uh, in contrast, is non-recourse, and our funding is only ever secured by the litigation proceeds. You know, they're not going to be secured by, you know, assets of the firm or personal guarantees or things like that. If you're in the law firm setting, and then likewise for a client, if we're doing a direct client funding, same thing. Our, you know, we're only collateralized, if you will, by the litigation proceeds of specific case or cases. So I think it, it's it's different in that it's it's non-recourse, our collateral is limited, um, but we try to also have a very fair and transparent process because everyone I work with, we're all former big firm litigators. We know how difficult it is to practice. We know the difficulties of law firm management and in particular cash management. And especially right now in this COVID era where I think there's a lot of uncertainty about, you know, are clients going to be paying? Maybe they're paying now. Are they still going to be able to pay in a year? And so I think a lot of firms are also looking at, you know, how to sort of make their cash, especially firms that operate on a cash basis, last longer. And, you know, sometimes using our cash, although it's not inexpensive cash, is a better play than, you know, using the firm's own money or drawing down on a line of credit. Now, is my impression for a number of years was that litigation funding was something that really belonged to the contingency plaintiff side alone. Is that the case? I mean, if you think about, 
you know, I think what we traditionally think of as the plaintiff's contingency side, you know, maybe you think of the firms like the Girardian cases out there or Mark Lanier or some of these bigger, you know, plaintiff's types, lawyers and plaintiff firms. But really, I mean, what we're also trying to help lawyers and law firms understand that for their clients, you know, litigation finance can also be a great business development tool for them of saying, look, you know, if you've got a client that has a great case, but the client is reluctant to do the full spend and you as the firm don't necessarily want to do a full contingency because that's not what you normally do, well, we can come up with a hybrid arrangement, for example. So let's say you're going to, like for us, one of our preferred deals, we call it a 50-50 deal in which we say, okay, give us your budget for the case at your full rates. Let's say the budget for the case is $4 million. And let's just talk about just fees for the moment. That's a $4 million fee budget and say, okay, well, we'll go 50%, 50% with you law firm. So you agree that every month you and your client agree every month, we will pay your bill 50%. So you law firm have cash coming in the door every month, every 30 days, as long as your client has reviewed and approved the bills, it comes to us and it's going to be subject to a cap. You know, once we've paid out 2 million in fees, we're, we're going to be done unless there's some sort of other circumstances in which we mutually agree to increase the funding amount. So for law firm, now you've got 50 cents on the dollar coming in every month at a full rate. And if you think about law firm realization rates, you know, now you've shrunk your risk as a law firm to, you know, if your realization rate is even 80 or 85%, now that is, you know, 30 or 35% is really what you have at risk. And again, whatever we pay the law firm is on a non-recourse basis. So, and then on the back end, they're taking a smaller amount, you know, maybe it's like 20% or 15% of the litigation proceeds, you know, so it's like a hybrid arrangement that we sometimes would enter into with clients that, you know, it's like a less traditional contingency type basis. But anything that has an alternate fee arrangement, you know, it's generally we're pretty flexible outside of the box thinkers and we can come up with a lot of different ways that that can help those scenarios. But I think particularly, you know, especially for the firms that say, oh no, we don't do contingency fee work. We say, okay, well, what if we, you know, sometimes depending on the case, we can pay up to 60% or 70% of the bill, which then shrinks that realization rate even smaller and it becomes an easier sell within the firm. And then obviously as the more money that gets paid out, you know, on a percentage basis, whether it's 60% or 70%, obviously the back end gets a little bit smaller for, for the firm. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so when you're looking at these cases, aside from sort of drawing on your own experience and the experience of outside firms, um, what are you doing to evaluate a case that comes across your desk? Yeah, there's there's a couple things we do. And so we, as the investment managers, we tend to be former, you know, big firm and boutique firm uh, litigation partners. And then we also have what are called the, the, the role itself is just called legal counsel. And it's it's a little bit more like an associate or senior associate type role. Same thing. Most of these attorneys have come from big firms. So they really tend to do the sort of deeper dive as would be expected. But we as investment managers and, and legal counsel, I mean, we will, one of the things we're always really looking at is who, who are the lawyers involved and who is the team? You know, what other cases have they worked on? So we'll go on to, you know, Lex Machina, which I don't know if you've ever used it, but it's a great platform. You know, we'll use Lex Machina to do 
a dive on the lawyers to do a dive on the jurisdiction. Um, sometimes cases come to us, you know, mid litigation, so we can get stats on the judges. You know, what's the timeline to to trial? What's the average time for resolution of a motion to dismiss in that particular court? Um, so we look at a lot of metric based things. But then, similarly, you know, it's almost as if you're in a firm and you have to go and present to your contingency fee committee and and write up a memo of the pluses and minuses of your case. And so, you know, we still read cases and do legal research. And, you know, in the process, it's funny, some of the counsel we work with who are seeking funding for their cases, they'll say, oh, that that's not even an angle we thought of. So we tend to be, you know, we're an unbiased view because we can't be biased as investors, right? Like we can't put investments up and, and try to overly sell them to our investment committee. You know, we just have to say... This is the investment opportunity. We recommend it, but if our investment committee passes on it, they pass on it. Um, and sometimes they pass on it for reasons that are just, it's just a pure feel thing. You know, a lot of our deep dive is doing the merits of the cases. You know, what is the precedent out there? What do the facts look like? Um, and then the other piece always are the damages. And so that tends to be a little bit more complicated and we can also separately hire separate damages experts uh, or economists or whatever we need to really make sure we're understanding the damages separate and apart from what we've been given or been told by, by counsel, because that's always really important for us to understand. And then the other piece that's extremely critical for us for obvious reasons is understanding the collectability from the defendant. Now, some things are easier if the defendant is a publicly traded company, but if it's a private privately held company, that becomes a little trickier in terms of trying to figure out, you know, are we really going to be able to collect? And collectability obviously is a huge thing for us. So we spend a lot of time on that. <laughs> yeah. So you weren't originally a litigation funding attorney. How did you make the transition from being a, an insurance coverage litigator, a lot of what you did, to to this? So it's, it's funny. Um, I'd been really interested in litigation funding for probably the last, I don't know, four or five years. And um, a friend of mine, she's actually um, our chief investment officer here in the U.S. And she's a former uh, Latham litigator and McCool Smith litigator. And she's fantastic. She did a lot of securities litigation. And, you know, we were talking one day and she said, yeah, I think he would be great for this. And, you know, again, for me, it was this tremendously interesting notion of being able to evaluate cases still, I mean, it's still very, very, very much a lawyer job. Um, you know, you have to use your lawyer brain, but it definitely takes out the stress and pressure of dealing with clients and answering discovery and dealing with four summary judgment motions at the same time and things like that, which is not to say the job isn't without stress because it is stressful and you work really hard and you're stressed out about trying to get investments approved. And then once it's approved, then you are stressed out and you stare at the dockets constantly of what's happening in this case. And, you know, because you don't want to invest in something and have it go sideways. And sometimes they do. I mean, that's just the nature of litigation and that's just the nature of risk, right? So you essentially got recruited into this. I did. I did. And I think in part, you know, I had had a couple lunches with Allison just, you know, as more on a, you know, friendly basis, but also because I'm a little bit of a, you know, kind of a legal nerd. I'm just, and a, and an 
you know, business nerd and, and I liked the entrepreneurial nature of it as well, in which um, at the time I had, I had helped co-found a smaller boutique uh, firm doing exclusively insurance coverage litigation. And I mean, I loved my partners and it was a great experience. This just sort of allowed me to do something totally different, but also, you know, coming from a smaller firm, you tend to do, or at least I was doing at the time, a little bit less business development because you're more focused on making sure you're billing the hours so you can collect and you can help support this, you know, basically what is a startup at the time. And so this really has allowed me to do the other big half of my job, although less focus on it right now, is the business development side. And so I, I'm lucky enough that I attend a lot of conferences, speak at a lot of events, um, you know, speak and write about litigation funding. And then a lot of it as well is just connecting with lawyers. You know, it's a lot of lunches and dinners and coffees and, you know, presentations and just, you know, sort of helping to make sure we stay at at top of mind for lawyers, you know, whether considering cases or we can get calls. There's some firms where we feel like we're probably sufficiently embedded in the in the in the frontal lobe, you know, where they go, oh, yeah, litigation funding. Yeah, every case. We got a case. We got a case. We got a case. And that's great. And there's other folks that keep saying, yeah, we don't really do contingency fee work. And so, you know, you got to do a little bit more work on those. Um, but so from a transition standpoint, it's been good. I would say the the most challenging aspect for me has been going from one of advocacy to being a little bit more, what's the word, cautious, I guess, because we're not really advocating for these investments. And, and it's a it's a fine line because you you believe in the investment or you wouldn't be putting it up and you want it to go through because that's our job. But at the same time, you don't want to oversell. And so you're not really doing like an opening statement and like a closing argument to our investment committee. But it very much, you know, we can talk about the process if you want, but it is very much like going up before an extremely hot appellate bench, um, <laughs> the <laughs> investment committee process. So Interesting. So you're, you're doing a fair amount of muted advocacy, maybe. Yeah, I think I think that's a fair, you know, assessment of saying, you know, look, we think because ultimately you're recommending the investment. So you have to have there has to be some level of advocacy, right? Of saying, look, we think that the positive attributes of this outweigh the risks. And so just in that process alone, I mean, it's sort of, I think, a natural effect of, of you know, advocating to some degree. Sure, that makes sense. Seems like a, a lawyer might come in and uh, have a tendency to oversell. <laughs> as an advocate. Yes. Well, yeah. And some of the cases, and that's why I said one of the reasons we vet the damages so highly is, you know, we'll hear. So we have sort of a joke of anytime we hear the B word, which is not the B word, it's B as in billion, but we call it the B word. Anytime we hear the B word, we go, okay. And then that's when we really do the deep dive on damages and say, you know, okay, well, where are you coming up with this B word? And and also, it's great. If you have a billion dollars in damages, that is amazing. Good for you. Fantastic. Business is going great. Can you collect that billion dollars? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, then, then we transition to the next part of, you know, the collections part. So, yeah, I mean, we definitely have been pitched some things. And we have to do so from, from and, it, and it's a delicate dance, right? If you have to have conversations with lawyers or, or claimants and say, look, you know, we're going to pass on this investment. If you want to know why, we're happy to talk to you about it. And then those are always slightly awkward conversations. Um, 
I've either saying, look, like we just think there's too much risk here, or we you think you've got a great argument against, I don't know, statute of limitations defense, but you know, we would put that somewhere less than 50%, and that's just too high of a risk for our risk tolerance. Um, and look, there's other funders out there that have a greater risk tolerance than we do, um, but there's also many funders that have already entered and exited the market, and we prefer to be uh, in the market. Prefer <laughs> to stick around. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how is your background as a, an insurance litigator, is, does that translate over into what you're doing now? Yeah, it, it does for a couple reasons. It does because at the end of the day, most insurance coverage cases are breach of contract cases. And so obviously we look at a lot of breach of contract cases. In addition, in, in insurance coverage work, especially when you're doing um, third-party liability cases or DNO cases, you know, directors and officers insurance cases, there's generally some sort of underlying litigation that you also have to understand. And whether that's... Um, you know, potentially an antitrust case or, um, you know, maybe there's some sort of, um, you know, securities litigation or something going on where those, those types of insurances apply, you get used to looking at those things as well, um, of having to understand those litigations. So having an insurance coverage background has been great. And the other thing I would say is to the extent we are looking at funding cases where there might be an insurance angle with respect to the defendant, of sort of also understanding from a collection standpoint whether there might be insurance there that would be available as a collection standpoint as well. So it's been it's been really helpful. Yeah, it makes it a lot more uh, attractive if there's a deep pocket that way. Absolutely, absolutely, and it's it's certainly not something we you know it's not like it's a targeted thing where we're going out and seeking these you know, types of things, but, but that's just something we always look at as well. And so, and I get a lot of calls from my colleagues of saying, Hey, we've got this insurance angle on this. What do you think? Um, and that's the nice thing too, is, you know, we all come from different backgrounds. We've got, you know, former patent litigator from Kirkland in our New York office, Sarah. So she's, you know, outstanding. We've got, you know, former antitrust lawyers, we've got international arbitration specialists. So we've got, you know, a nice broad range of, of things folks have worked on. So there's always someone you can turn to that has, you know, either expertise in that particular field or has funded that type of case. But then also that's why we go to outside counsel in a lot of cases as well. So let's, let's rewind okay. a bit. When did you first think, you know what, I want to be a lawyer? You know, I don't even know. I think it was maybe in high school, but it wasn't a very well, I think, formed thought. And then I think I got into college and I remember saying to someone, you know, I want to be a lawyer and I want to, it was some, you know, I want to help women. And then he sort of realized like, well, who's going to pay you to do that? You know, like, I mean, unless, and it's great work, you know, but if you work for a public interest organization or you go be a DA or something like that, but sort of there never was this connection of like the work and who pays you for the work? But then when I was in college, a lot of my friends were going to law school. And I sort of lost the idea of, wait, am I going because I want to go or am I going because everybody else is going? So I wound up taking six years off before I went to law school. But that's a So then story. eventually you do. And then uh, did right. you? what was your first job out of law school? My first, gosh, it was actually before, even before I went to law school, um, I had worked as a paralegal and I wound up working for a firm 
uh, in Century City here in Los Angeles called Troop, Stuber, Passage, Reddick, and Toby. Uh, and at that firm, I met, obviously, Dave Stuber and Kirk Passage, as well as a bunch of other great folks. And so I worked there until I started law school, and I took a leave of absence. And during that period of time, Troop, as the firm was called, sort of spun out. And the insurance coverage practice and some of the other lawyers went to a firm called, at the time, it was called Howry, Simon, Arnold, and White, now sort of just lovingly known as Howry. And then another faction of the firm, or the greater part of the firm, uh, went over to Aiken Gump, and the firm sort of ceased to be. So I was lucky enough to then, when I was in law school, I was a summer associate at Howry, and then was working at the firm uh, my second and third years of law school as well, which was great. So let me let me back up to something you said there. So you were you actually started out as a paralegal. That's right. Uh huh. Did that teach you anything about sort of the general practice of the law? You know, did you have a different perspective coming in? It it did. And and one of the reasons I, I decided to go work as a paralegal was, you know, my family had said, you know, well, you said you want to go to law school and now you're waffling. I mean, maybe maybe this is a path where you can go and get some experience and work in a law firm and see if this is what you really want to do. And so I headed down that path. And when I was still continuing to try to go to law school, you know, all of the sort of, I would say, attorneys at every level said, are you out of your mind? You know, whether they're an associate or a partner, are you sure you want to be a lawyer? Are you sure you want to do this? And I did. I just really liked it. But I think I think I had a greater appreciation for, honestly, for the staff and for the paralegals and sort of what went into some of the more what what we then as lawyers or partners, you know, would think of as grunt work, you know, or just be like, oh, have the paralegal do it. You know, I thought, well, that was me. You know, that's still a person that works really hard. And what you're saying, have them do it. That is not a one hour project. You know, that is a four day thing or whatever it is. So I think just from, from one, like an, like an empathy standpoint, I think it, it really helped. And then two, it also just, I think sort of just helped me frame things just even a little bit differently of seeing things maybe from someone who wasn't necessarily trained like in the law as a lawyer, you know, from maybe a more practical approach. Hmm. I imagine without knowing that you were somebody that paralegals like to work with as a result. Yes and no. (laughs) (laughs) And I laugh because... One, I'm hyper-organized, and so if it was, like, a paralegal that wasn't as attention-to-detail-focused, uh, I don't think they really loved working with me. I was, I still am to this day, a little bit of a nightmare about, you know, I don't know like, white binders, this type of font on the label. I mean, these stupid things that really didn't, they <laughs> don't matter. But I just liked what I liked. But I can remember even being a summer associate and turning in you know, a memo, and I had turned in the memo in a binder with tabs with all the supporting cases behind it. The partner was like, good Lord, let's hire you now. Can we hire you now? <laughs> um, so you have you have the empathy going for you, and then you have the high standards knowing what what you expect you expected yourself to to do going against you. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, it was a good and bad thing, but I did always try to be, you know, from a time management or time expectations thing of saying, look, I know this is going to take, you know, I don't expect you to do this in an hour or 
if you need more time or if you don't understand it, please just come talk to me. You can always come talk to me. Even if you don't agree, maybe your way is better, but let's talk through it. So I, that was the one thing then and even now I still try to be at least, you know, approachable and open to suggestions um, because my way certainly is never the best way. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and talk about Howry. Lori Lee is brought to you today by our presenting sponsor, Array. With offices throughout the nation, Array is the litigation support partner that delivers speed, accuracy, and unmatched service. Array manages the logistics of litigation so lawyers can focus on winning their cases. For information on their discovery, managed review, deposition, alternative dispute resolution, and subpoena services, visit trustarray.com. That's trustarray.com. Today's show is also brought to you by eDepose, the electronic exhibit solution for depositions. With eDepose, attorneys can use exhibits during remote depositions, just like they do during in-person depositions. The best part? You don't have to learn a whole new process. Just mark, introduce, and distribute personal copies of exhibits to all participants in real time, the same way you always have. Learn more at edepose.com. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. So let's talk about your time at Howery. Uh, when you think back on the years that you spent at Howery, are those generally fond memories for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm just laughing. I'm, I'm sitting in my office at home, and this is just directly above me. And I know you won't see this on the podcast, but I don't know if you can see that. <laughs> I just, I can. Do you know what this is? <laughs> oh, yeah. This is my Howry Boot Camp 2002 Lucite. This is my boot camp participant. And then if I were to roll back about five feet, but I would disconnect myself from my headset, I have my senior associate globe sitting oh, on the table mine. behind me. Yes, mine. see? Yes. <laughs> so these were the, the great milestones at, at Howry. And so... For folks that don't know, Howry was a litigation-only law firm, and it just, it was kind of this really special place where it wasn't, you know, you didn't have the the M&A lawyers or, you know, just these different departments. It was just, we all were litigators. If one team was in trial, sort of every associate was kind of on call, you could get, you know, weekend assignment, hey, we need a pocket brief on this, or... Um, you know, we had in-house graphic design people and trial consultants and these great war rooms. And I don't know. And to this day, you know, I still keep in contact with a lot of Howry friends, as I'm sure you do, Sean. And and we all still say like, and I've worked at a couple firms and this isn't a slight to any of those firms, but there was something really, really special about Howry. You know, yep. even on the days that you hated it. And let's face it, there were always days you hated it. Um, it's still, it was the people. It was just this really special group of people. The energy was usually really good. We had a lot of fun. Charlie Park, who I know, you know, Sean was, you know, kind of, I would say like the fun ringleader at Howry. And <laughs> unfortunately he passed away a few years ago, mm. but, uh, you know, I, I'll, I always think of Charlie when I think of Howry and that, that's a good thing. Yeah. I, I definitely think of Charlie. I definitely think of, a handful of people as you know sort of the the personalities that defined it in a lot of ways so yeah i i totally agree in terms of you know what made how a special place and i i agree it was um 
And I've heard that from so many people. And I think in part two, especially if you started as a summer associate and you went through the boot camp program, which was this very arguably bizarre, <laughs> bizarre summer associate program. Yeah. Tell me about what is what is boot camp? So normal summer programs are like, you know, eight to 10 weeks at a firm and you just go to a bunch of lunches and dinners and funny events and whatever, and you gain 15 pounds and they give you a job offer. Um, at Harry, we had, I think it was three weeks in the office of doing assignments and sort of the, the speed dating aspect of the lunches and dinners and events. And then you, all of the summer associates got shipped off to um, Leesburg, Virginia, which was about, I don't know, an hour or so outside of DC at this big conference facility. And you spent the next two weeks learning about litigation and how to like put a little case together. And so you were given a mock case and you were put on a team with two or three other summer associates. And then you were given a coach and those coaches were generally like senior associates or junior partners. And one would come for one week and then the next week someone would swap out. But during boot camp, you would take a deposition, you know, it was like a half an hour, an hour deposition. They actually would have a court reporter there and you would get a transcript after. And then they would also send in different partners and senior associates to judge and to do critiques of your deposition, or you had to argue a motion for summary judgment or a motion to dismiss or whatever it was. Um, and then, you know, you had expert skills and so there were these constant skill sets being taught and oh that was the thing too you spent the bulk of the day especially the first week in a classroom setting where they would you know fly in you know the partners from all over the country all over the world to teach on various topics that was their expertise um, and you know give war stories and experiences and then you know kind of the neat part was you could have you know lunches or dinners whatever with these folks and but make no mistake I mean you worked your tail off i mean you were in your like little team war room until two or three in the morning i mean you'd be so punchy by the end and i think at the end it was a two-day bench trial you put on mm -hmm. and they would also fly in different associates to act as the witnesses in the case and you would have to meet with them beforehand and prep them just like they were a witness and yeah to for those who don't know law firms don't do this <laughs> this is <laughs> this is totally unusual um, and and I think a lot of people shied away from it because they were like, well, absolutely. that doesn't sound fun. I want to go to the baseball games and the wine tastings and, you know, a, a weekend in Santa Barbara or whatever firms did at the time. It's obviously a very different environment now with summer associate programs. And But um, it was a hard sell, you know. I mean, there'd be years where we'd be like, uh, the job market's hardening up and like we're kind of having a hard time finding people that want to do this, which was a shame because... You know, we all loved it. Yeah. Yeah, I had the same same thoughts. My um some of my favorite memories though were the time I spend at the times I spent as a as a coach and going back there and working with the the junior or the summer associates and uh a lot of fun. But but it was almost it, it was sort of a boot camp. It was that's not a, a misnomer. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, yeah, there, it was long hours, up late, up early. It was stressful, but it was also fun. You know, you remember the, the Pony Express bar? So initially <laughs> it was held at this like post office conference facility. Um, and so, 
they had this bar there called the Pony Express that just then became known as the Pony. I have many memories of the Pony. A lot of karaoke at the Pony. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What? Let me back up a little bit. So were you in the Los Angeles or the Century City office? So I initially, so (laughs) funny story. So initially I was set to start in the Century City office. And I had been working there all through law school um, and working with Kirk Passage, who was an insurance coverage partner and someone who I would go on to work with the majority of my career and was most recently my partner when I was still practicing. And so Kirk, um, there was, I can't remember, it was like a Thursday or a Friday. It was a couple of days before the California bar exam. And I was going into the office just to study for the bar because I had free air conditioning and internet service. This is in 2003. Um you know, good internet and a printer and, uh, you know, free coffee. What more do you want when you're studying for the bar? So they said, oh, we have a meeting in the conference room. Everybody has to come. And I said, oh, no, it's like, you know, jeans. This is not when you could wear jeans in a law firm. I said, oh, I'm not here. You know, I'm not here. Now you need to come. Okay, fine. So I go and anyway, long story short, Kirk announces he's leaving the firm and Tom Nolan, who you may recall, was there, who was the managing partner of the firm at the time, and he announced, you know, well then, effectively, immediately, we're shuttering the Century City office and moving everybody downtown. So when you're taking the bar three or four days later, this is like a lot to process when sort of the, kind of the two main things you would thought you'd bargain for have just gone yeah. out the door. <laughs> Kirk, Kirk left to, to, smart a very, to start a very small firm at the time that I just, it's just not what I wanted to do. Um and so I, you know, stuck with the Howery crew and moved downtown. And it actually was great. Life, life sometimes works the way it's supposed to. So um, I think that was actually a good thing for me in the long run, to be in the bigger office downtown. Now, what do you think, uh, what do you think of when you think of the L.A. office? Gosh. Um, <laughs> it's funny. There's a couple that, I mean, part of it, you just always think of the people, right? Um, and so I always think about... Um, you know, Mike Resch, who I think, you know, we all know and love. I don't want to say either in a past tense. He's gone in-house now. Um, but, uh, you know, Mike was just this great presence in the office, this great energy, a lot of fun. Um, but I think when I think about the L.A. office, there was just this certain energy there of the litigation and the cases that were going on and kind of everyone knew what everyone was doing. Um I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to put put it to words. I mean, maybe I'll turn the question. <laughs> <on here. laughs> yeah, I summered in L.A., and so I got to know a lot of the L.A. people. Worked with Tom and Joanne and and a bunch of others, and um, and so then when I actually started practicing, it was in Orange County, um, but I maintained a lot of those relationships up in with the folks up in L.A. and and I think. In, from my perspective, a lot, large part due to uh, to Tom's leadership and some of the others that that led that office, there was this environment, there was this culture that that permeated the whole office uh, that made well that that led to it being such a a great place to work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even down to things like you know the firm holiday parties and things like I think a lot of people sort of dread about you know corporate life or law firm life. Like, oh, I don't want to go to the holiday party. Whatever. Like, it was so fun. You know, like we loved it. People would get rooms at whatever that was, the Checkers Hotel next to the office and, you know, have 
party suites. And I mean, it was just fun. And it wasn't, I never saw it as sort of classist either. Like, I felt like people were genuinely friends with the staff. I feel like there was a lot of folks that had been there for a really long time. And there was really true, genuine care and concern for one another as people and colleagues and coworkers, and not so much as this is your title, this is your title, this is your title. Um, and at, at other firms I went to, it was a little bit different or there just hadn't been that same level of, you know, the staff had all been there for five, 10, 15 years. You know, these people had spent a long time in those positions at the firm or had come over with partners and had worked with folks for a long time. Yeah. I think that's something that I, appreciated after the fact that the culture really was top down but it but it went down to the to the roots you know it was the staff the the paralegals the associates the partners and and there was a common sort of identity there yeah and even if you think about you know i always think about what was her name anita who was the receptionist downtown and um you know, some of the folks in IT, I think about like Anna and um, oh, Tanya and, you know, it's just funny that the things that you remember and the people you remember. Um, but it was just, you know, again, it was it was just a really special place. And, and I feel like the OC office was was great, too. A lot of really good friends in that office as well. And I remember we'd be so excited if you'd see the thing of, you know, Sean or Frank Cote or, you know, Todd Smith, Dale Gialli, whomever is like, oh, they're in, you know in LA for the day, and you'd, oh, this is great. You know, you always make sure you stop <laughs> by, and and again, it was almost, you know, to me, it kind of reminded me like a little bit of being in college, where yeah, you do. Well, I don't know, some people didn't do a lot of work in college, but you do a lot of work, but also you really enjoy being there because of the people. So speaking of work, what's the most hours you ever build at Howry? Oh gosh, at Howry, I think my. Best slash worst year there was like a twenty three fifty year. My best worst year was at a different firm, and it was like twenty seven ninety three. It was bad. That was a bad year. <laughs> that's a lot. It's a good year, but it's bad year. Um, yeah, that's a, a whole lot. lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Twenty three fifty is a lot. Twenty seven hundred is. That was a lot. horrendous, yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, know folks that, I'm going to put in air quotes, bill, you know, 3,000 hours a year, year over year over year at different firms. And I just said, that's just, A, I would never want to do that. B, I don't know how much I believe that's even possible. But um, sure. if you don't like <laughs> sleeping or having any friends, sure, have I mean, at it. I don't know. But um I was going to say, even those, you know, the, the long hours at the firm and, and at Howry in particular, I mean, again, like usually, cause I was only ever an associate or senior associate at Howry. And so oftentimes you were on teams, you know, if you were there working late or in trial prep and, you know, we, I still laugh and I'm still very good friends with some of these folks. We had a big trial coming up and we worked over, you know, um, the trial was supposed to start the first or second week in January. So obviously we worked Thanksgiving, like all of December, like they just, Every holiday we had basically together at the office. We had food brought in every night. And we were miserable, but like deliriously happy at the same time. You know, it's like the best time you never want to have again. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Who is Uncle Howry? Who is Uncle? Well, he had a credit card. Um, 
What's the most, what's the most extravagant thing Uncle Harry ever covered for you? Gosh, that's a good question. So I was the sort of lead associate on the Associate Affairs Committee. And so we started having these annual, I don't know if it was so much of a retreat as it was a meeting of like the Associate Affairs Committee. And I can't even remember. I think one of the years, I think it was in um, Las Vegas. And I think we somehow managed to get like, you know, one of those tables with bottle service and, you know, in hindsight, we're probably the biggest nerds in this nightclub. Um, but, uh, that would, that, I think that was probably it. Getting Did you toast Uncle Howry? Of course. You know, of course. Everything was, thank yes. you, Uncle Howry. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> uh, so let's, let's talk about the time that, that Howry goes under. Were you still around at that point? So I left with, um, Les Brown and Tom McMahon and a couple other folks. Well, they, they left first and then I had followed them over to Perkins Coie. And at the time I was doing probably 90, I don't know, 80, 90% of my work with Les and Tom had sort of pre-called it of, you know, look, the writing's on the wall here. This probably isn't going to survive. We're going to get out while we can or whatever. And I, I I was really, really, really sad to leave. Um, but I sort of felt like that was kind of the prudent choice at the time. Uh, my friends would still be my friends and, you know, they still are all these years later, which is great. Um, so yeah, we left about a year. It was exactly a year, um, before Harry went under. Cause I think Harry went under in March of 2011. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And I left. So you were about a year, a year early. We were a year early. You guys left. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it really was one of these things that even though we'd left, we still had, you know, great affection for the people there. And it wasn't like dancing on anyone's grave to any degree, you know, when the firm ultimately sort of fell apart. It really was a very sad day, you know. Do you remember at the time that you left, was there already sort of uncertainty around the continuing sort of viability of the firm there was and that's i mean again that's why the the partners who had left you know and i followed um at at the time several other i mean i think there was you know sort of the exodus had started um and it seemed fairly clear um at least from and and look as an associate you have far less transparency into the firm and so you have to put some stock into what the partners are telling you and you know, I, I also had some partners who, you know, were not leaving at the time, but who I discussed it with, you know, sort of agreed that, like, that might be the best path for you because no one knows, you know, where this is going to go. You know, is there going to be a rescue boat for everybody? Does everybody get rescued if you're not the go-to associate for the, these partners, which, you know, when I had done the bulk of my work for these folks there was no guarantee that I could, there would be a lifeboat for me to get into, so to speak. Um, I, I think that's a really good way of putting it in the lo- way that a lot of people saw it. You know, when people were departing, it was how much room is there on that lifeboat? Am I, am I on it? Do I have a seat? That's right. Yeah. Uh, and so yours was, yours left before 
it actually probably struck the iceberg. Right. Yeah. The iceberg was was in sight, or at least you know, at least on the horizon. I think. Um, and they said, "Well, we're gonna, you know, get on the boat now." And um, but yeah, that's always kind of been the analogy. Yeah. And it, again, like really devastating to see that firm go, and you know, the people that typically suffer when when firms go under like that are the staff. You know, and that's really what you really, really hate to see. Yeah, so you were still close with a lot of the people that were there, I imagine, at the end. Um, what were you hearing from from them sort of in that critical time frame of it's it's about to go under, we think? I think it was a lot of, okay, well, this partner's now left, and this partner left, and there's this many people left on this floor, or they're talking about consolidating. And again, I mean, it was harder as associates because you didn't have that necessarily the transparency of what was really going on. Um, but definitely just these sort of constant rumblings. Um, and then you would hear, oh, this group is, is maybe going to go to this firm and, you know, trying to figure out how many, again, how many seats are in the lifeboat at, you know, firm X or firm Y. Well, and the, the structure of partnerships makes it even more difficult that way a lot of times than, People might expect in the in the general corporate world because uh, you you can't sort of recruit people on your way out um, if you're a if you're a partner. Well, right, but you're basically not allowed to even approach the associates about coming. They have to say, "Oh, you are going to Perkins Coie. Can I please poach?" That's the word. You know, can can I come with you? You know, they're not supposed to have those conversations. So one, that part's tricky, and then two, you know, even partners who are looking to go to different firms, you know, their the room in their lifeboat is largely determined by what does their book of business look like and how many people can they support in their boat, you know, from a purely financial standpoint. And sometimes it's, well, the partner wants to take more money. I mean, the firm might say, well, we would allocate X amount of dollars to that group. And the partner might say, okay, well, I need a bigger salary and therefore, you know, I'll just use the firm's existing associates or whatever. Um, but I can remember a lot of that was how big is the boat depended on the size of the book of the partner or partners going over and how many people they could support. Because there were always, and there always will be in firms, you know, the rainmakers and the worker bees. So, um, but it, that in particular, the Howry demise was sort of my first real understanding of the importance of having your own book of business, not just being like a good associate or a good lawyer, like you really needed to have your own clients if you really wanted to control your future. Yeah, I, that was certainly driven home for me in that that time frame because... <laughs> they didn't cover that at boot camp. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, there is a common sense, I think, um, among associates who come out of great, great law schools, and they, you know, get um, selected for, you know, to work at great firms, and there's this achievement mentality, which um, is legitimate, but it's it's all built around the quality of their work and you know what they what they do, and at the end of the day, that's part of that's part of it. But if you're a really good lawyer you're a really good lawyer among a lot of other really good lawyers. And um, if you don't have business to back it up, then it's not going to take you very far. 
So, Sean, I don't know if you remember this, but we had a meeting once and they would have these quarterly sort of financial related meetings in which they would go through the finances and projections and whatnot with the associates. And it was the firm managing partners because the office managing partners putting something on and it was a graph up on the PowerPoint presentation. And, it, you know, the firm was based in Washington, D.C., so it's being presented from D.C. And there was a graph and at the bottom it said FBU which stood for fungible billing units. <laughs> and someone asked, okay, wait, sorry, what is a fungible billing unit? And just no hesitation, no awkwardness. Oh, that means associates. That's pretty good. And that always stuck with me, that you are a fungible billing unit in the eyes of the firm. You can think you're really special, but at the end of the day, you are a fungible billing unit. Fungible it's billing unit. That is... You never heard that FBU no. story? Oh wow! Wow, yeah, <laughs> that's pretty. That's pretty honest. FBUs, yeah. So you know, at the end of the day, and even when I left my existing partnership, and again, like same thing, very close with 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 most of my former partners, and have a lot of love and affection for them. But at the end of the day, you know what? Your cases get handed over. Other people can run it. There's always, you know. A lot of lawyers in the world. Um, yeah, a lot of good lawyers so, out there, and a lot of good lawyers you out need there. Need to be yeah. somebody that brings in business. It's a business at the end of the day. That's right. Otherwise, you are an yeah. FBU. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you you keep what in touch with? How are you people? Oh yeah, there's a, there's, it's funny. In fact, and I'm sure they they aren't very happy with me right now. But I would say. I mean, the last couple months, pretty routinely, I'd say at least one Sunday a month, if not more often, there's an open uh, Zoom sort of drop-in happy hour with um, a lot of former Howry folks. It's, um, oh, Craig Hirsch and Tara Kowalski, Carolyn Woodson, um, Matt Kitson, Stephanie Stroop, Andrea Weiss. Um, oh, I'm sure I'm forgetting people. Um but anyway, so it's just nice you can still, you know, at least drop in and see your friends during this COVID era. Um, and, you know, I still keep in touch, obviously, with, you know, a, a bunch of other folks, including um, Scott Malzahn, who you might remember, but he was in my boot camp class. And um, he's one of my best friends. And um, and Mike McGoy, um, same thing, is totally out of the practice of law and, you know, someone who will always be a very, very dear friend to me. Um so yeah, I still keep in touch with a lot of folks. And then because of sort of the way law firms work, I mean, I still see and routinely talk to, you know, a lot of the folks that were initially at Howry at, and at, even at, that had been at Troop beforehand, you know, Linda Kornfeld and obviously Kirk Passage is a huge part of my life. And um, yeah, so it's kind of neat. So a lot of it is that that genesis of whether it's Troop or Howry um, was a really great building block for my legal career and his you know, I don't know if I would be sitting where I am now without them. So, so what's a uh, a career highlight post Howry for you? Post Howry career highlight. Um, you know, one of the um, obviously I made. Eventually, I was at uh, Dickstein Shapiro, and you know, making partner in a big law firm is is a pretty big deal. Um, so that was definitely a highlight. Um, and another highlight was we had a. Um, we tried the first Superstorm Sandy 
uh, insurance coverage case in the country. Uh, we had a trial against AIG, and it was a case which, funnily enough, I mean, I drafted the complaint in the case, and I think it's pretty rare that you sort of draft the complaint and you make it all the way through trial. Um, and so, I mean, that case was really my baby, and I had gone back and forth to New York a bajillion times for depositions and meetings because the loss took place in New York. The case was filed in California on behalf of a California-based company, and the case was tried here, and you know, we won the case. We got a bad faith verdict against AIG. Um, but that was, again, for me, that was the year I billed, you know, a gajillion hours. Um, but really a career highlight because we also got from, you know, complaint to trial in less than two years. Uh, it was a pretty breakneck pace. Although originally we were supposed to go from complaint to trial in about 10 months. But the trial got kicked a couple times. But we had really done the bulk of the work in that very compressed period. Wow, that's a um, that's very compressed. So you had something to show for that crazy year of hours, at least. Yeah, yeah, which which was nice. And again, it was a really great experience, and um, you know, uh, stressful, very stressful. Trials always stressful, but uh, but it was it was good. So that was definitely a career highlight for me. So I got a few uh, quick questions for you to wrap up. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite thing to do to unwind? So as you mentioned in the in the intro, um, I do play a play a lot of golf. <laughs> <laughs> How often? Uh, well, I decline to state that. Um, <laughs> I'm very lucky. I'm a member at a golf club that's about 10, 15 minutes from my house, depending on traffic. So. Um, I play early, I play late, I play generally speaking from say Friday evening to Sunday night. I usually will have gotten in, you know, 90 holes of golf. I tend to play 36 holes every Saturday, 36 holes every Sunday. Um, wow. so that's four rounds. I probably play four to six rounds a, a week. Uh, and sometimes it's just nine holes. I'll play two days a week. I generally play nine holes, um, early and I am back you know, ready to go sitting here at my desk before 9am. Um, and I was doing that when I was working downtown and I would laugh because a lot of times I'd still be the first one in the office. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I play a lot of golf. Well, that's fantastic. I'm jealous by the way. Uh, <laughs> where's your, it's when, when you say relax, it also drives me absolutely crazy. So um... <laughs> it wouldn't be golf if it wasn't, uh, where's your favorite place you've golfed recently? I was lucky enough in February before everything went super sideways uh, in the world to have played at Pebble Beach and Spyglass, which was pretty cool. And how'd you shoot? Uh, I shot an 84 at Pebble Beach. Thank you very nice. much. Nice. Spyglass was slightly less successful. Shot 89 at Spyglass, if you missed it. <laughs> um, Spyglass is hard. <laughs> and then I, I also really loved it. It's funny because they have the PGA championship there this week. I played at TPC Harding Park this time last year uh, in San Francisco, uh, which is also super hard. But any of that Northern California golf is just fantastic. But I've been very lucky. I've played at a lot of pretty cool golf places. Uh, do you have a favorite lawyer joke? Um, I don't know. Now, now I'm on the spot. No. I'm going to go with no. Okay, I'll tell you one. <laughs> okay, good. Why do they bury lawyers under 20 feet of dirt? Because 10 isn't enough? No, I don't know. Because deep down, they're really good people. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking of like, you know, 
There's some joke about lawyers at the bottom of the ocean, but I can't remember the punchline. The punchline is something like not enough, but I can't remember what the actual joke is. Yeah, lawyer jokes tend to be really morbid. Yeah, yeah they tend to be about usually like, involves the lawyers. death of lawyers. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Almost always the punchline. Uh, right. What's your position on lawyer shows? Um, you know, I think they they're some of them are better. You know, I remember back in the day when I was a paralegal and sort of first getting into it, you know, the, the sort of Ally McBeal days, if you will, where they would get the case and two days later they'd be in trial and you know, they, uh you're setting some pretty unrealistic expectations here, people. Um <laughs> so I think a lot of them are pretty bad, but they're certainly getting better. Do you have a favorite one? You know, I don't know if you would call it a legal show, a legal show, but I love Billions and the Paul Giamatti character of being, you know, the the uh, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, and obviously that was a lot lot based on you know Preet Bara and um, you know the, the Sheriff of Wall Street, and I love that show, so that's probably my favorite. I don't know if you really call it a legal show, though. I'll, I'll count it. I'll count it. Okay. Uh, so, what's one thing you've learned about yourself? during this COVID crisis? Um, you know, I've actually learned, and I used to work from home from time to time, and, and I did it for a while, but I've really learned that I'm actually pretty good at working from home. And, you know, I live by myself. It's me and the dog with a lot of very deep conversations. Um, <laughs> but I've also just sort of learned to, I think as lawyers, we tend to, we've been accused of being controlling of situations and, you know, being control freaks. And I've had, I've really learned though about just letting go because none of us can control what's going on right now. Can't control the timing, can't control what's going on. So just, I think a lot of it has just been learning to let go. Hmm. Making the best of it. Yeah. And I have, I mean, I wish I could pan to my backyard. I now have a huge hitting net in my yard and this giant 11 by six multi-cup putting mat set up out there and uh <laughs> nice <laughs> Play a lot of golf at home too well we'll have to get out for some golf yeah um, absolutely it has been a pleasure thank you for joining us thanks sean it's been uh, I've, I've really enjoyed the trip down uh howry memory road it's great so thanks for having me that's all the time we have for today big thanks to fiona cheney for joining us and thanks as well to our presenting sponsor array as well as our show sponsor, Eda Pose. Join us again next time as we continue the How Are You Doing Now series here on the Lawyerly Podcast. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe to Lawyerly and give us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. Production services for today's episode are by Four Hours of Sleep. And the music for the show is by Rhythmic Revival. Until next time, I'm your host, Sean Kennedy of Herrera Purdy. 